Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. Are you sometimes surprised by how your customers respond to your marketing efforts? Will Leach's new book, Marketing to Mind States, may provide insight into how behavioral design can help you craft a message that speaks to the mind state of your target audience. In this episode of Hack the Process, Will tells us how he applied his own concepts when editing his book, what behavioral design can teach companies like Nike and Capital One about their current customers, and why our unconscious associations have such an impact on the choices we make. Today I'm speaking with Will Leach, and he is the author of Marketing to Mind States. Will, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, David. Thank you so much for having me. Good. What is your mind state today? My mind state today, I'm going to go with optimistic achiever. It's been a great day. I've been trying to overcome some barriers. I'm excited about being here. I only see optimism in my, in my future today. So today I'm optimistic achiever. Tomorrow I could be something totally different. <laughs> That is awesome. I'm sure all of us want to know, how do we get ourselves into that mind state? That's right. It's called priming. I'm sure we're going to talk all about that in the next uh, couple of minutes. Cool. So I understand your background is in behavioral design research, right? It is. It is. I spent a number of years in my career on the corporate side of America trying to help companies and my companies do better marketing. And that's where my focus has been for the last couple of years. Yeah. I think a lot of people have impressions in their minds about what those words mean and what they mean when they're put together, but maybe you could give us a clearer definition. Yeah. So the way I define behavioral design, and you're right, there are different terms. Conceptually, the idea is this, is that research will tell us that we make about 35,000 decisions on any given day, like 35,000. And if we're making that many decisions, then there are other factors outside of our awareness that are influencing our behaviors every day. Behavioral design, the way I think about it, is what are those mechanisms, the contextual kind of environment and how in our psychology, how are those working together to make decisions specifically as it relates to buying things? Or you can relate it up to anything like losing weight or whatever, but the way I think about behavioral design is using psychology and context, bringing those things in together to help the psychology and the subconscious make better informed decisions. So using behavioral design, when I think of that, my mind kind of goes to manipulativeness. And I don't know why that's where my mind goes, but I'm curious, how do you frame that? So it's funny. In the 1960s, you know, the, the classic studies were around subliminal messaging and we're being subliminally controlled. And all that whole series of kind of studies and things have all been debunked. If you look into the literature, that being said, we are understanding more about the way people make decisions and those influences on decision than we've ever had before. Like technology has gotten us to a point with neuroimages and scans and, and just strength of understanding through behavioral sciences that there are certain things that influence us more than others. So there are a group of people out there that are looking to use those things for influence. And there can be good side and bad side. And what's interesting about this whole dynamic, David, is it's not just marketers. In fact, I would say marketing is not using it very much. Governments around the world are using behavioral design and policy. Every major country, including our own, has a 
think tank of people in the government, behavioral activation units that are using these things to help guide policy. So the question comes in, well, where is the line? Is there a fine line? Where is that line? I think we're in our infancy, frankly, as a science. And I'm not sure that there are guides right now that are in place. Um, I'll say that our industry is starting to get smarter in marketing and saying, where's that edge of where we come into manipulative? I think I would tell, and I tell anybody now that there is a line that you can manipulate. I'll also tell you that that line, if you overstep your bounds on that line, it'll work one time. But yet, if there's a bad experience, if you convince somebody to take an action, you know, buy a product that they shouldn't have bought or they didn't want to buy, I will tell you the ramifications back on your brand are much bigger than that first time sale. So all that being said, it's more informed marketing. It's better marketing. But I think there is a line. I think as an industry, we're trying to wrestle with how far do you help or influence decision-making to a point where it becomes manipulative. And I think if what the going thing right now is always provide an option. I think that's kind of the mechanism that some of the biggest thought leaders is that you can't provide behavioral design or environments without giving an option for people to opt out or to take a choice B. So if you provide people options, then most right now are thinking that that in and of itself is a way of not being totally 100% manipulative. Debatable. Okay. I can see where, you know, th there would be some ethical questions around that. And I don't know if I'm comforted or not by the idea that governance are more deeply involved with this than marketers. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm with you. I think the next 20 years are going to be big for our industry and, and what's acceptable, what's not. I have lots of stories about lawyers using this, et cetera, but we can talk about it another time. <laughs> <laughs> that said, this book is targeted more toward people who are, look, are thinking about the marketing side of things, right? That's right. So who who is your target audience for this? Because I notice one of the things that you do in the book, you, you're framing a lot of very complex concepts very much in layman's terms so that people can really digest them and apply them. I do. So my career has been in corporate America. I worked for a number of years at PepsiCo. I ran behavioral sciences over there for a while. And what I found is that we speak in corporate America and in advertising agencies in these big words like hyperbolic discounting and cognitive heuristics. And I think we try to sound smarter than what we really are. And and who I wrote the book for was, I said, you know what? I read all these things every day. I don't watch football. I read these studies. I don't play golf. This is what I do. But when I try to explain what I do, we all have these big terminologies. Like I said, these, these big words that nobody really understands. So really what I did was I said, I want to write a book. And it was a very deliberate action to not write yet another academic book about how you know these psychological factors influence us. I wanted to make something practical. So I think I, even, I wrote as the, as the subtext I was the practical guide to applying behavioral design. So I really wrote it for somebody who knows nothing about psychology. And that's why I wrote about my own personal stories. And I wrote about my own experiences in, in corporate America to try to bring these theoretical constructs to kind of fruition. So technically, it's written for marketers and advertising agencies who don't have degrees in psychology. Now, I'm also a researcher, so I kind of brought in that perspective on accident. I think it was just my own bias. But traditionally, it's really for that real estate agent or maybe that small agency who's just trying to do a little bit better marketing and knows that there's other things that are happening that they can, you know, outside of people's control and kind of in the, the subconscious state that could help their marketing. So I tried to make it for those types of people who don't have to know anything about marketing or actually psychology, but to apply some of these things just to make their advertising a little bit better. Were there any things that you did when in putting the book together? And I want to get into your process a little bit that helped focus you around the mind state of your target reader. Yeah. So what I ended up doing was, so I've been doing this for a number of years. And the first thing I did was I kind of took 
these 18 mind states that I talk about in the book, and I laid them out on a table. And they're not too complex. I almost think of them as personality types. I don't like to think of them that way, but that's an easy way for everybody to wrap their head. Oh, these are kind of personality types, but these are temporary in nature. So that's why I don't like to call them personality types. But I took these out and very quickly, you'll find when you look at all 18, you can look at anything you're working on and you can eliminate 13 or 14 right off the bat. Like that doesn't make any sense for the people I'm trying to relate with, the small business owner or the small agency. So I took all 18 and I, I basically deselected. That's the first thing you should do. It's like whenever there's a complex situation, deselect, get rid of options. That was very, very quick. Once I did that, I had about five that I felt pretty good about where I thought this could be a mind state that I want to write the book around. Then I did what just everybody should do. Go talk to your audience. So I talked to brand managers that I worked with. And I started asking things like, what are your goals as a brand manager? And what happens is when you ask people about themselves and about what their goals are, just in their career, like not around you know, buying my book, what is your goal for your career? They actually, it's like poker. They give you tells. When we talk and we talk about ourselves, we actually give us tells that we're not even aware of. I took a couple of those interviews, not many, by the way, and I narrowed down five down to about three. And then ultimately, I chose the one that I felt was most comfortable writing about. And so actually, I think you're the first person I've ever talked to about this. I don't think even my editor knew this. I actually <laughs> wrote the book through the optimistic. It's called The Optimistic Empowerment Mind State, meaning that I was trying to create a book that as the reader read it, they would feel empowered and feel like they, by reading this, they are maximizing their ability to do better and control their business. And so it's funny, I've never talked about that, but that's actually the way I thought about writing the book was to help people feel like after, after reading this book, I can take control of my marketing. It was control versus lots of other things I could have done. I think that's interesting. I've never told anybody that before. <laughs> Just to give people an example of how that works, how did focusing on that one particular mind state guide the way that you worked on your book? So an interesting thing when we're talking about anything is we can frame up any situation, any product, any book using a number of different frames. I chose to frame using what I call the empowerment motivation. And I don't call it, it, it actually is a, a motivation. And the empowerment is conceptually about providing control. People in the world oftentimes want to feel more control. And that's what motivates them to read more, you know, order something on a menu, et cetera. So as I was writing the book, you don't start with that in your head, David. Like you don't start trying to think to yourself, how am I going to write a book that is constantly reconfirming that the reader will be able to have greater control? Because if you start at that level, you actually don't write very well. You write poorly. In fact, what you do is you tell stories and I wrote a book first. Then through the editing process, where I felt like I had a sentence where I said, you know what? I framed that sentence up, but actually I guided the, I guided the reader to think that if they take this, this action, that they will be more likely to achieve. Let me rewrite that one sentence to be able to, rather than saying they're more likely to achieve, they're more likely to control. So the best advice I would tell you, and I tell this to my own writers at Trigger Point, my company, is don't start with the mind state, write what comes from your heart then overlay the mind state and use that to edit some of your words. And that's actually the process that's a much easier process to tweak your writing versus trying to start with your writing. Does that make sense? It does, absolutely. And I've talked to a number of writers who all say that the very first part of the writing process is really getting your ideas out there on the paper. And then you go through it and you edit it and you, you frame it and you massage it and you target it. But getting it out there first really is critical. And I had to learn the hard way, by the way. I, so I started the book originally in 2012 and I just kept editing and I kept writing in that style. And it wasn't until I actually talked to a professional author who told me, 
just like you said, get it out on paper, then bring in your mindset, bring in all that, the editing. And that was a much simpler, much better process doing it that way. So this is the only book you've written so far. First one. And it's the most humbling thing you'll do. And I think it's also the most rewarding thing you do as well. But it's humbling to write your own book because once it's out there, it's out there. But it's also, it was great just to remember stories that have impacted me personally. And then using that story to convey a deep psychological principle, it was meaningful. I can imagine. And, and as you say, once it's out there, it's out there. I know that one of the challenges when you're writing a book is it locks your thinking into one moment in time. And once you have published it, there is no changing that. <laughs> That's so true. That's so true. In fact, there's even, there's a page in the appendix, which after about three weeks after we launched the book and it was out there that I thought, oh, I don't like that anymore. I don't, I don't think I would have said it that way, but then I wrote it a year before, but you're exactly right. Once it's out there, it's out there. But I think, you know, people give you the benefit of the doubt. If you speak from your heart, and this is a point of view that I believe is going to help marketers do better marketing. I think it's going to help the local real estate agent sell a house faster or the local gym to sell more memberships. And I think if you speak from the heart that that's really what you're trying to do is just make the world a little bit better place. I think people give you forgiveness and they accept that you know you evolve in your thinking. I really do. Sure. And you're also coming from a place of much higher authority on on these issues so that the fine points that you're seeing right now, when you might tweak a point, you're still so far ahead of where the readers are that you're still bringing them along quite a ways. That's so true. That's 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 really true. I'm, I'm behind the scenes. I'm behind the scenes where other people aren't. Yeah. No. And I believe you have also a career as a speaker, right? I do. It's been ramped up a lot because of the book. But you know, I started my company in 2000, and let's just call it 14. Back then, I was talking to audiences who had no idea what I was talking about, system one and system two thinking and things like that. So I found out very quickly that I better get comfortable on stage and expressing my passion for this topic of behavioral design and designing to create experiences that are intuitive, that feel natural to people. And so I found out very quickly that I better get comfortable on stage and speaking. The book has just made it to where I can now be paid <laughs> to go on stage where before I was just seeking any audience because I wanted the I wanted the advertising agency world to adapt and to think that, you know, this is a new way of optimizing creative. So yeah, the book has just made it to where it's a slightly less expensive proposition for me to be on stage. <laughs> That's interesting because a lot of people make a career out of the speaking side of it themselves without without bothering with the book because speaking itself can be a profitable business. Mm -hmm. I'm learning that. I'm learning that. <laughs> yeah, although it, it can also be used to promote your, your own business. And in this case, I believe you have an agency, right? I do. I have a behavioral research and design agency. And now we're starting to look at the, like you said, the speaking the speaking and not, I think of just kind of knowledge economy where, you know, I can speak on this and you can actually create a business around speaking about a passion and where you have depth in it. So it's that whole key person of influence. So it's a separate company that we're thinking about now, but there's definitely a future in that space. Hmm. A separate company. You're thinking about that as two separate things? They, I, I am. Now, I think that the book feeds work to trigger point my agency. Absolutely. But I also feel like my passion now is making advertising better, marketing to mind states. But very quickly, I could see what about selling to mind states? Like how would we do negotiations differently if you understood the mind state of the person across from the table? Parenting to mind states, how would, I, how would I interact with my child, my son, differently if I understood that he's in this particular mind state? You can go on and on. Well-being to mind states, you can do managing to mind states, marketing to mind states. I mean, there's so many places you can take that, that I, I think that there's something interesting. Not that I want to build an agency around all those models, but I love the idea of just thinking about how our non-conscious influences our behaviors. Where can you take that? Teaching to mind states, coaching to mind states, it's all the same thing. Understanding what drives people to do what they do. 
wow, I can see how expensive that can be. And I, I, I could see that being kind of intimidating, just having all of those thoughts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. It's hard to wrap my head around it. But you know, I'm a young guy. I'm gonna, I got a couple of years to figure it all out. Right now, I'm focused on marketing to mindset. That's my passion. That's what I've been doing for my career. So let, let's dig into that concept of mind states. Uh, these are unconscious states that we transition through from, from day to day. And you say that there are 18. Were these established before you or were you, were you the one who defined some of these? I'm the one that defined them, but they're established social sciences. So it's, it's a amalgamation of really behavioral psychology and what's called regulatory fit theory. And it's through those two genres of sciences. That I said, wait a minute, when you pull those together, they actually form 18 different mind states. Okay. So you threw a couple of terms out there, regulatory fit. And could you dig into those a little bit for me, please? I can. So the first one is, let me go through motivational psychology. Think of your motivation as the engine that drives you to go after any goal you want, whether it's to lose weight, to win that girl's attention, to figure out what I'm going to order, right? You have a motivation that drives you like an engine. So there are nine motivations that motivational psychology has found that is pretty universal to everybody. Things like achievement or esteem or autonomy. Autonomy is about personal freedoms, or like the one I used, empowerment, our desire for control. So there are nine total motivations. Security is another one for like very Maslow, right? Security, we desire to have safety and comfort. So there are nine of these motivations. That's how I get to a portion of my mind states. Now, regulatory fit theory, which I said before, you're like, what is that term? So what happens is there's a guy by the name of Tori Higgins who's been studying how do we approach our goals. So if you think of a motivation as the engine, Think of regulatory fit theory as the map or maybe the GPS system. So you're on, you're taking this car ride, right? And your engine is pushing you towards this goal. The map regulatory fit is this idea that we go after all of our goals in one of two ways. One way is called promotion regulatory fit, meaning we seek to maximize gains. So any brand, any message, any strategy that tells us if you go down this road, you will increase your chances of reaching your goal. If you're in that state, you're going to want to go down that road. You could have the exact same motivation, the exact same goal, but other people will do what's called prevention regulatory state need. They're trying to minimize loss or risk. So they're going to seek brands and messages and strategies that say, if you go down my road, you will eliminate any consequences or barriers to reaching your goal. So it sounds the same promotion and prevention, but it's not. So how we get to 18 mind states, nine motivations times two, promotion, prevention, 18 mind states. I see that. And I can see how immediately why, why it would be easy enough when looking at how you want to target your book, for example, you can eliminate nine of them immediately by just saying, I don't want to focus on the pain oriented people. I want to focus on the pleasure oriented people. Or That's what I did. Exactly <laughs> what you just said. Exactly. I don't want my book about eliminating pain. I want to help them optimize and maximize gains. Nine were immediately cut. That's exactly how I did it. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I can see that. And I can see how that could apply to somebody who is deciding what color a button should be on a website and figuring out what type of audience they're going to target, deciding, you know, they, you know, this is a goth art audience. They want something that's pain oriented. They want something that's very dark. So they go for something that's dark and they will just eliminate all of those positive choices right away. Yep. Absolutely. You're getting it. You're a designer. You didn't know it. <laughs> yeah, I threw in the terms pain and pleasure because I've heard the the those concepts of regulatory approach, I suppose, referred to as, you know, being either pain avoiding or pleasure seeking. That's exactly right. You, that's exactly. In fact, that's probably a clearer way of defining it. So I'm actually going to write that down right now. 
Okay, well, it's, it's just the way that I've heard people talk about it, because I've heard that people are more likely to be afraid of losing something than they are to be interested in gaining something. Like you're more upset about losing $5 than you're excited about gaining $10. Debatable. But yes, I've heard those okay. studies too. Those are beer talk conversations because it depends on the mind state. It's funny you said it depends on the mind state you're under when that option is presented to you. But we could talk about that another time if you want or whenever, but it depends on the mind state. We can talk about it a little bit right now because it, what's, what's interesting about it is that I think people have come to assume that this is a universal truth about people. And what you're saying right now is that it's not a universal truth, although it applies in a number of cases. And perhaps in the case of those studies, it applied. But that doesn't mean that there's a generalization that could be made. That's right. So I've heard the same studies that we've, we, we basically value losses oh, uh, twice over a gain, right? So like you said, that it takes $10 of gain for me to feel the same as a $5 loss, right? That is only under these, and this is from our work, and, and, and frankly, a Nobel Prize winning economist you know, has stated that the, he's right in this. So I don't <laughs> want to take anything away from Kahneman, right? Because he's got creds that I don't. But I will tell you that when I have used that ratio, but I've talked to people in that prevention, that pain-focused mind state, so those people in prevention mind state, that ratio holds true. However, if you talk to somebody who's in the promotion mind state where they are being regulated around gains and pleasure, then that that pain is not nearly as important because they're focused more on the gain of the $10. So what I don't believe Kahneman ever did was, I don't know, but the whole regulatory state impacts our perception of what a pain or what do I desire less pain or more gain. So in our experience, it matters what regulatory state they're in before because we craft messages exactly to what you just said. Like, can I, can I use loss aversion or not? And I always say, People think loss aversion is like, that's my go-to one because I know people, there's a two-to-one ratio. I'm like, not necessarily, not necessarily. So that's why I say it's a beer conversation, but in our, in our experience, regulatory fit matters. I can absolutely see that. And the nine motivations, you say that those were something that was standard out there. You were familiar with them. Where did those come from? Yep. So I think I got mine from a, a, a professor over in Ohio State University back in the 70s called Rice. And he actually had 16, he calls them basic drives. But some of those drives are things like sex or food or completion. And some of those don't make sense as, as it relates to marketing. I believe those are biological, I think. They work in marketing. Don't get me wrong. Like sex works. Totally get it. <laughs> yeah, you were rewriting marketing for me right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I don't believe you will. But some of those things I thought were more biological in nature. And some of his 16, I think, laddered in. So I took work from not only Rice, but I also looked at work from Desi and Ryan. I looked at work from Maslow and I kind of looked at this and I can now, I could, we could debate whether there's 12. I don't believe there's 16. We could debate whether there's 12 or nine. But when I look at my nine, they feel very encompassing to where I feel very comfortable that, that it hits those nine. Now, let's say if I was going to work for Playboy or something like that, I could do work for Playboy. Maybe I would start thinking of sex as more as a motivation, but just the majority of clients out there are not in the sex trade. They're selling perfume using sex, but they're not in the sex trade. So I always think to myself, I don't know if all 16 of his basic drives are truly what I believe are a motivation, but I got them from his work, really. Okay. Yeah. And I can see where you're targeting for an audience that is looking at ways that they can apply this practically from in, in a marketing perspective. And then perhaps as you target some of your other audiences that you think might benefit from looking at this, you might bring in some of those other ones. And when I think of those nine motivations, my mind goes to the Enneagram. And I think more about people gravitating toward different types and feeling like, you know, this is my general motivation in life. Mm -hmm. I'm an Enneagram five. I know all about it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, I was wondering if that was something that that you incorporated into your thinking around this. 
I, I caught into the Enneagrams later after I'd already come up with my, my model, but my wife is really big into Enneagrams and, and we've definitely, we look at it in the house and I think it works. You can see motivational psychology all in those Enneagrams. It's all, it's all brought in together, isn't it? But no, it, I, I, this was post Enneagram, but when I looked at it, I'm like, yes, this guy's got me. I'm a perfect five. I'm a perfect five on that. In that case, you say these are transitory states that everybody gets into, but it sounds like people gravitate towards, like some of them are like strange attractors. They nat- naturally gravitate gravitate back toward this one state. We are. So a couple of things, like they are transitory in nature, but you have, like you said, natural states. So I tend to be naturally prevention. I'm a little bit risk averse across lots of different categories. That's just in my nature. I'm a little more introverted as well, but categories matter. So as it relates to business, I'm very different in business and I'm much more achievement focused. So categories are, and what my environment changes how I deal with the task at hand. But I also like on my everyday, you know, in my everyday world, I tend to be prevention. I look at risks more so than I do opportunities. And I also tend to be oftentimes motivated by esteem, which is one of the nine motivations. And, and esteem sounds bad, but, and it, maybe it shouldn't, but really esteem is about self-respect and, and it's a, this desire to have respect. And that's a strong motivation, a lot of different things. And I, that tends to be me naturally, but given, you know, when I, I used to do triathlons, respect didn't matter to me. It was all about achievement, break a time, break a time, break a time, right? I can see that. And I can also see why that would, that kind of orientation would help support you in a speaking career, for example, where you'd get out on stage, you'd get the applause, you'd get the recognition, you'd get the esteem of being the authority everybody's listening to. Yes. But you know, what's so interesting what you just said is I also tend to be introverted. So what I find is when I'm on stage that I'm totally different. Like that's not my natural mind state because I, because I think I'm prevention in nature. But when I'm on stage talking about this science and this world of behavioral design, I almost turn different. In fact, my staff calls me chuckles. I go, there's chuckles again. Like I turn different to a different person. But then when I get off stage, I actually revert back to esteem for sure, but more prevention. It's just a, it's just a weird thing. So my natural inclination is, is risk aversion. But when I'm on stage, I, stage I'm, I'm almost a different person, but only for that hour, right? Or only for the 40 minutes. And then I, I kind of move back. But that's my environment. My environment creates that person temporarily. I can relate to what you're saying. I'm also a natural introvert and I am such a ham on stage. I love the, it's, it's addictive. It's like a drug. <laughs> yes. I'm learning that. I'm learning that. So you brought up introversion and extroversion. Is that something that's sort of orthogonal to these mind states? Not really. There's a probably a little bit of an interplay between being more introverted and more risk adverse. But no, I think Tori Higgins' work on the the approach and prevention doesn't find a correlation between those at all. So I, and I haven't seen it in our work either. That's interesting. So we're, we're, you know, we're, we're living here in the 21st century, and we've got all of this technology, and you're talking to marketers, most of whom are probably going to be targeting audiences they're never going to see, and they're never going to come face to face with. But it feels like a lot of uh, a lot of what you're talking about, in terms of figuring out what mind state your potential customer is in, is something that you need to interpret from a lot of signals that you're getting. And it's difficult to get those signals when you're you know, sending an advertisement out across the ether. And how do you recommend people work with that? It's a great question. So what I do is I say, don't focus on the person. Don't stop marketing to the person. Market to the mind state. And here's what I mean by that. So you're right. I could have a natural mind state, but let's say as I'm walking out the door, my wife yells at me or I'm really, my budget is really blown for this year. And I, I, I'm really worried that I can't make my mortgage. Like there's all these other influences that could temporarily change me. So if it's so a will, if we're temporarily being changed, whatever, then how do I market to that? Especially on the mass level, here's what you do rather than thinking about here's my segment. And because this is, I know my segment, I'm going to go message that segment. Don't do that. 
we're too kind of transient as people. We, we change our minds all the time. We're very variable, right? Think about the category. So let's say you're selling sports shoes, right? You're Nike or whatever. Don't think about the person segment. Think about what are people, all people desiring within the sports shoe industry? Like what are they, what are their goals for a sports shoe? Think at the category level. If I can think at the category level, you're going to just like anything else. If you go talk to a bunch of people, you're going to probably find that at the category level, there are two mind states that are really important. So athletic shoes, I think achievement makes total sense. And let's just say another one could be belonging, which is another motivation, but belonging is about being a part of a tribe. So let's say these sports shoes are going to make me, I believe I'm going to be able to run triathlons faster. And I'm going to be kind of a group of other triathletes who use the same shoe, right? I don't know, but let's just say that's it. So knowing that people, there, there could be lots of other mindsets out there that are, that are kind of influencing the shoe industry. If you know that these are the two major ones Rather than trying to think about messaging to the person, message to the category and prime that mind state, meaning you can actually prime a mind state. So it doesn't mean I have to message to your actual mind state, because if you even have a little receptivity, even if that's even if that achievement mind state isn't your number one or even your number two, but it's within kind of reason, I can actually prime. So a lot of John Barr's work around priming is saying, use a basic prime to put you into that mind state. I hope I'm being clear here. But the reason why you don't have to subsegment your massive global industry into thousands of subsegments and then try to figure out a different message for each, like who can do that? Why would you do that? Prime to the biggest mind state that's driving the entire category. And certainly not everybody's going to be impacted by that prime, but you're more likely to get them a significant portion of those people to temporarily be placed in that mind state. And then they're more susceptible to that advertising. What I want to do is dig into the into that term prime. Because I'd like to get a visual sense of what it means to prime a mind state. Let's take a step back and say most things that you think about have associations. So let's just say France. So every time in your life you've been around somebody or talked about somebody from France or you heard about France, you had French bread, you've built associations around France good and bad across your entire experience around the word France or French, right? So all these associations are kind of in your subconscious. They're swirling around. They're interconnected, right? What a prime is, is a prime is where I introduce the word France to you. And I could do that through a visual or the word France. And what happens is all those associations that you've had over the course of your experience, you know, your life around French, good and bad, all of a sudden, they kind of become more top of mind. I don't want to say they're conscious because they're not conscious oftentimes, but they come more open. You're, you're, they're more top of mind. You're more salient. So what a prime does is a prime takes something that's really in the re, kind of recesses of your subconscious and makes them more salient and more influential to you. So a prime is nothing more than kind of almost think of it. I hate saying it this way, but it's almost like making things that were way in terms of long-term memory and it brings them up to more short-term memory. But if something's short in your short-term memory, and it's more salient, you're more likely to look for or notice, in that case, French flags, a beret, the Eiffel Tower. And I didn't have to say those words. I could have just used the word France and anything that has any association that you have with France will become more salient. You're more likely to notice the French flag, to desire French food, etc. Okay. Okay. I can see how that could work. And in the case of Nike, for example, a shoe brand trying to accomplish their goals with their mind state that they're trying to prime, how would you uh, approach that? 
So if it was achievement, let's say if we said I'm Nike and I'm not going to message to all 18 mind states, and frankly, I don't, you know, I don't know how to message to the perfect person at the perfect time. I would start thinking about my messages and showing, and you'll see in, in the book, you can actually go to a website and download all 18 of these mind states for free, right? So if you downloaded one of these mind state these profiles, you would, it would tell you things like if you want to activate the achievement mind state, you would do things like showing a guy maybe with his arms up in victory. You'd show a checkered flag like for race cars because race cars and the checkered flag is associated highly with achievement, like winning success. So you'd, you'd have a guy with his arms in victory, pose like, like, like with his arms raising. Yes, like I won. You'd show people crossing a finish line. So if Nike wants to drive that mind state, I would be looking for advertisements that didn't show the shoe because the shoe is just a shoe. I want that shoe to be placed in a point where somebody overcomes a barrier because the achiever mind state is about overcoming a barrier to accomplish something. So it's like the going, jumping over a hurdle, crossing the finish line. If I can prime that, I will now hopefully place that person into a position of thinking, oh, achievement mind state, <gasps> Nike, Nike can make me an achiever. I'll buy Nike over Under Armour. Basic priming. Okay. All right. And, you know, I've certainly seen Nike ads that look like that. <laughs> That's why it's so easy to describe. <laughs> yeah. Is that just a, like a very obvious case or can they all be so, so straightforward? I think that's a pretty obvious case. Not all are, are that straightforward. We have worked in things like, say, insurance. And insurance companies are oftentimes driven by more prevention regulatory states. So that idea of the pain, that, you know, by definition. Um, and so in that case, well, how do you try to prime security, which is the motivation? So cautious security would be, you know, the, the mind state. Well, that gets a little tougher because imagine the things that are associated with security boxes, locks, fences, barriers, moats. Well, in that case, how, and I've had these conversations because these things are highly associated with, with security. And you can use, certainly use the word security, by the way. I mean, that's actually maybe the best, easiest prime. But insurance, how do you think about those things that are highly associated with security? How do I put those, those things I just said, a moat, a fence, a lock, a box, how do I place those into creative where they make sense for an insurance company? takes a little bit of uh, brainstorming. Now we've done it. In fact, we've even done it in the background where we've actually placed locks in the background just to try, because it doesn't have to be like to where it makes total sense, right? You don't, you don't have to totally make sense because your subconscious will pick up on that lock and feel there's an association of security with that advertisement, but it's hard sometimes. It, it's, it's not as easy as the Nike example, as you can tell. So there's a lot of brainstorming and a lot of creative ways of thinking, how can we place items within this advertisement, within this banner ad words that can convey security without saying, we're the most secure insurance company because frankly, all insurance companies are secure. Like that's not why you're not choosing your insurance company based upon, are you the most secure? Because most people associate all uh, insurance companies being secure. So you have to do it in a creative way to make it on brand. That's interesting. So it's, it feels like that kind of harkens back to some of those questions about subliminal messaging and whether or not that's effective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that that is. And I'd say in the 60s and 70s, they're saying, yeah, it's, it's not certainly long term, it's not effective. And a lot of those old studies, like I said, have been debunked and everything else. But there are new studies that John Barr does that actually has shown that just placing a small prime in the background does create that temporary feeling of security. Like it's off his work. And for the sake of marketing, temporary is all that you need. Ah, so for that first sale, yes. My fear is always that, yeah, exactly. I get worried about that because Mark's like, well, I'll just do that. I'll get my sale. And, and temporary, yeah, you, you can drive short-term top-line growth and sales. I think my, my fear is that 
over the long term, if your brand experience doesn't actually provide that security that they're looking for, or if the shoe really doesn't help them win that race, but you kind of convince them or temporarily triggered that mind state, you're, I think there could be long-term ramifications. They don't just feel like, ah, that brand, something off on that brand. And once that happens to your brand, that association is now linked to your brand that we just talked about. So I'm always careful about this thing. Oh yeah, you can do it temporarily. Like if you're about to go out of business, try anything. Long-term, not so sure. I can see. And that kind of gets to that inflection point between where marketing ends and sales begins and you have to be maintaining that customer relationship. That's, I love what you said. Yeah, exactly. Sales is oftentimes focused on that short-term sale to make that quota. And and there's more pressure on that on the the long-term on the brand side is no, no, build this long-term experience and and, and feeling about a brand. So now I I could totally see that's why there's all that tension between sales and marketing, right? Yeah, and and you target your your work more toward the marketing side of things rather than toward the sales side of things. Although I imagine the people in sales could find a lot of benefit from what you're doing. Yeah, I just did my very first presentation to a sales organization because they read the book on marketing. They said, actually, can you take these same concepts and just help our national sales team think about one-to-one you know, conversations when they're kind of selling. And so it, it's actually, I can make the case that this stuff is much more appropriate to one-to-one conversations. If I can understand the, your, your mind state, I would position you know, my sales proposition very differently in the moment where if you do it through marketing, you're relying on packaging, you're relying on banner ads or social media or something like that. There's an intermediary between those two. So I think that I'm getting exciting just now or excitement just now the last couple of weeks from salespeople reading the book and saying, actually, Will, this is selling to mind states is actually something we could really use. And that didn't occur to me at all until just a few months ago. I, I guess maybe it should have, but I'll so focus on marketing to mind states. I didn't even think about the sales side of it. Hey, one thing at a time, one thing at a time. Uh, and speaking of one thing at a time, you're, you're running your own agency. And you, you told me that before you were working at Pepsi and before that, I'm assuming you were working at other companies before Pepsi. I'm interested in that one thing at a time aspect of your life where you made that transition from being an employee, working for a company, doing everything to support like a larger organization to going off and forming your own organization. You know, I'll tell you, I had a an interesting road to get where I was at. And I had a lot of things going for me. And I like the one step at a time analogy because it truly was one step at a time. I did not make this huge jump. And I left, I had a great job at PepsiCo. I, I loved my job. I love the people there. The problem, like with anything in corporate America, the minute you love your job, they want to rotate you to another job right, to get your critical experience. So I had this idea about starting Trigger Point. I wanted to do this with my life because I couldn't stop thinking about it. I couldn't stop reading about this stuff. And I went to my boss at the time, and she was a vice president in marketing. And I said, I have this idea, but I don't have funding. I don't know how to start a business. That's I didn't want to be an entrepreneur, David. Like I just wanted to do this for Pepsi, and it just didn't work out. So the easiest step, and, and I think it's probably the reason why, because I'm, I'm risk adverse, that I actually took the step to go out on my own because I had a nice salary and I have a kid. It's because she said, you know, well, she knew my passion for it. And she said, if it doesn't work, just come back. And that gave me the feeling of security that I needed. That one step, I could try it. And I put enough money into an account so that I had nine months worth of salary you know, that I couldn't really hurt my family. We had to cut back, of course, but I had nine months of salary and I had my old boss who said, Will, you can come back. So that was step number one. I started and I was terrible, David. I was terrible at selling this stuff because I didn't, it was all in my head and I didn't know how to bring it out. I just kept thinking, if you guys just understood these mind states, you could sell better. And I would have people going like, why are we talking about subconscious? This is back in 2012, 2013. So I took a job 
with a company who basically said, you can keep doing what you want for your company, but I want you to spend the majority of time with my company. So they gave me salary. So I was getting close at first. I couldn't sell a project. My salary that I'd saved was starting to run out. And I was about to go take my job back at Pepsi. I was about to go ask and say, can I get my job back? Because I was, I just failed. I thought like anything else, I failed. That happens. And you know, you want to go get your old job back. I loved it. And then this other company, one more step said, work on our business for six hours a day. We'll give you the next couple of minutes, you know, hours in a day. You can work on your own. Yours. Teach us what you do. Then you can work on your own. Another step. I did that for about a year and a half. And then I had enough confidence. I had enough kind of skill in explaining what I do, creating the agency at that point, my relationships, my subcontractors to then fully go out on my own. So it truly was a stage gate kind of a thing. And I don't believe most people get that option, but I was blessed through circumstances that I had people who said, take a step closer to becoming your own agency, take a step closer. That allowed me to kind of take those pivots to get to a point where then finally I said in 2014, I'm done. Like, I think I have something, I can do it. And we're still rocking and rolling. That's amazing. And one of the things about that story that that really stands out for me is that you being risk averse, you made sure that you had a place to fall back to if something didn't happen. But you didn't stick the approach of building it slowly on the side while continuing your job. You actually made a transition from I'm a full time employee to I'm going to go try running my own agency and paying myself my own salary. I did. And I think it's because I had on both on both of those points, a very supportive wife who said, I have salary. So if you're going to do this, we have my salary. That helped a lot. So I could make that kind of, I didn't have to do the side hustle. I actually kind of had the ability to go totally away from PepsiCo. Um, and then, and then the second thing was I'm risk adverse. She kept bringing, like making, bringing me confidence where I didn't have confidence. Like, so she had financially, but she was always like, will keep going. She knew it was my passion. And, and deep down, I think she believed in trigger point before I did, you know, because <laughs> she just knew there's something to it. And she saw the passion. So so both of those risk aversion and the side hustle deal, my wife avoid, helped me avoid both of those. <laughs> both of those. So I, it's a very unique thing. People ask me for my advice and how did I do it? I'm thinking my road was very different than most other people's roads, but it, it worked for me. Well, everybody has different advantages and disadvantages. You recognized what yours were and you you used them. I did. Yeah, that's awesome. And so with, with Trigger Point, when you got started, you say you were awful at selling. How did you build up a client base? Incredibly, incredibly lucky. Uh, David, I can remember I, my original model was to go help advertising agencies. So I was I went to local agencies here in Dallas and I would explain to them, I can make your marketing better and we could do this work together. I'll never forget this, where I had an agency locally who I sat down with the owner and he gave me 45 minutes and that turned into an hour and a half. And I'm thinking, this is awesome. Like he's given me double the amount of time and I'll never forget it. He says, Will, he goes, I know you're passionate about this. I just can't tell what you're selling me. Like that was after an hour and a half. And that was the point, like I'm very bad at selling trigger point as a service. Like, I just had no idea at all. So I was incredibly, incredibly bad. My first client, real client was Capital One credit card financials. And what it was, and this is truly what happened. A buddy of mine was in Atlanta, Georgia at a restaurant at some sort of a business function. And somebody at the table was talking about a book. It's from Dan Ariely, Predictably Irrational. It's a very famous book around behavioral economics. Yeah, just, it, the book always seems in my world changes everybody's lives. Like, what? This is, book is amazing. Somebody at that table was talking about the book. So my friend said, you know, I don't know much about the book, but I have a friend in Dallas who swears by the book and he just started a company. You guys should talk. 
that person ended up working at Capital One. And for the first year, she no longer works there. She retired. But for the first year, David, she would say, Will, don't say those words. Will, don't frame up this. Like she kind of just took me under her wing and saying, this is how you're going to need to sell your services to a company the size of Capital One, where there's a lot of controls and lots of different, you know, it's a massive company. So my first project was from a conversation at dinner in Atlanta, Georgia, that I wasn't even at, who got me in touch with this one person. We both just had a passion for behavioral economics and we kind of built, I had a service, but she was able to massage that service, the deliverables, even my pitch deck to something that would resonate with internally for her because she had a passion. And by using her experience of the course of nine months, I figured out how to sell it to other companies and just word of mouth. I've never really marketed, but word of mouth. I do workshops and I, I do lots of webinars or not webinars. I do I do conferences, but it's mostly been word of mouth. But she was the one, again, who made, you know, talk about that small step who made TriggerPoint possible. There was no TriggerPoint until she told me to stop saying these words. Your deck is horrible, <laughs> cutting out things. <laughs> so I just had somebody who took me under her wing. That's awesome. Now, would you, would you have called that a mentorship relationship? I think so. I was teaching her behavioral economics and she was teaching me, she was my mentor in how do you sell behavioral economics to people who have no idea what you're talking about. So very much so. Interesting. With your own company now, how are you using the things that you know in order to help target your own customers? Wow. (laughs) You know, it's so funny. You'll find that sometimes we don't take our own medicine, right? So I've got a whole book and I'm legitimately, arguably anyways, a world-class marketing to mind states. Like I made the entire thing, right? So it's funny that sometimes people ask, well, how are you doing? Like I'll go to parties and people say, are you reading my mind right now? And I I always say like, if you understood how (laughs) difficult it was for me to understand your mind state in the moment, like just from a conversation, you'd realize that's the last thing I want to do. But it is this idea that people think that all because we have this expertise that we're actively constantly applying. And I, I would tell you that if you go to my website, my guess is there's multiple mind states in there because we always seem like we meet our clients' needs more so than we are, we do ourselves. I will tell you that I am all about, I wrote the book around optimistic empowerment and I made changes to my own company around trying to, because empowerment again is, is, is the desire for control. And so I believe that in a world that we live in right now, that's volatile, it's very uncertain, it's, it's chaotic, that control matters in our lives. And if I can provide control, even what I do to my clients, allow them to be more integrated into the process I think that is the place where my clients want to be anyways. And I think it's the place that I feel like we have to go as a society. All that being said, once I came out marketing mindsets, I started thinking of this idea of empowerment. Like what if my job was to empower my clients to have better control over their marketing, to make better decisions and, and control their circumstances? I started integrating control and providing my clients control in my research. So for instance... We have portals and and platforms now. So let's say if I'm going to do a piece of research that you are integrated, you're able to integrate yourself into our research to actively engage with consumers because that provides you with a greater level of control. So for instance, let's say if I'm having a research conversation, we do our, our research over the course of a number of days. So we'll talk to the same person multiple times over multiple days. Traditionally, I would go do that study for five days and my clients would never hear back from me in a couple of weeks. And then I give a report. Here's your report. I talked to John. John said this, and that's fine. More and more clients want more greater control. It's their money. And so they're they're actually integrating themselves into the conversation. And on day two, they'll say, hey, Will, I saw that John talked about 
my credit card in a different way. I want you to talk more. I want you to dive in on this. So they're able to give provide feedback at points throughout the process as opposed to what it used to be, which was you get a report at the end. That's an example of how I'm trying to provide greater empowerment for my clients to get involved. Now, it doesn't mean they always take me up on it, but creating transparency and letting them integrate themselves into the process helps me, frankly, because I do better research, but also provides them that sense of like, you know, when I work with TriggerPoint, like it's not that just them walking away and then they give me a bunch of stuff. Like I'm a part of that whole plan. So I could see that as at least one thing that we do that helps kind of match that mindset that I'm looking for, that optimistic empowerment. I could see that. And if I were, if I were hiring a company like yours, I would definitely want to get in there and learn what I could from the process while it was happening around me instead of just waiting for a report at the end. Yeah, you're going to have to explain it to your boss at some point. And you'd be surprised how few people do it. But I always thought to myself, if I was going to talk to my boss and they're asking me about, you know, or I start talking about a mind state, I'd want to be pretty well versed in how we got there versus, well, Will told me this is the mind state. So I'm with you. But not everybody's like that. Again, we're time crunched. World is very complex. So sometimes clients are just, okay, just give me the answers. Well, and we'll work for them too. I, I can see that. You know, I mean, we've been talking for an hour now, and I feel like we've just barely scratched the surface of a lot of this. So I would love to know where I can send my listeners to go find out more about marketing to mind states and about TriggerPoint. Great. So the book, you can find the book on Amazon. It's, it's at Barnes and Noble. So look up Marketing to Mind States. If you want to go to the website, it's marketingtomindstates.com. Or you can even put will-leach.com. And that'll, you can also go to my website. And also, of course, you can find me on LinkedIn under Will Leach and also on Twitter and on Facebook. Awesome. Well, Will, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you for making the time to come and share your experience and your research with my listeners. Thank you very much, Ram. I really appreciate it. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit hacktheprocess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening.